Let's uh, open our Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 14. We have a little bit to finish up at the end of 13, and we're going to go through chapter 14 this morning. But for our reading, we're going to focus on chapter 14, beginning in verse 13. We'll have that up on the screen for you, but if you'd like to follow along, Matthew chapter 14, beginning in verse 13 this morning. So reading from God's Word, it reads as follows, when Jesus heard it, He departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. When it was evening, his disciples came to him, saying, This is a deserted place, and the hour is already late. Send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. But Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, we have here only five loaves and two fish. He said, bring them here to me. Then he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass. And he took the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up uh, to heaven, he blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples. And the disciples gave to the multitudes. So they all ate and were filled, and they took up twelve baskets full of the fragments that remained. Now those who had eaten were about five thousand men besides women and children. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on a mountain by himself to pray. And when evening had come, he was alone there. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, If it is a ghost, excuse excuse me, saying it is a ghost, and they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer. It is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand And caught him and said to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Lord, would you add your blessing to the reading of your word? And as this is the word of the Lord, may we give your word all respect and honor that it is due this morning. And may you minister to us powerfully through your word, for it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and able to pierce to the very division of soul and spirit of joint and marrow. And it is able to judge the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And may it be so here today among us. And we pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen. So last week we finished off in chapter 13, and so we're going to go pick it up there back at chapter 13, verse 53. And after uh, Jesus had been uh, working there among the people, and then he was teaching them in parables, and last week we were considering the kingdom parables as uh, Jesus had been teaching them, and considered all the implications of those things that he taught them, some of which he explained and gave them interpretation on, and some of which he left up to us to understand, having understood the other parables that he clearly gave interpretation on for us. And at the end of that time of uh, deep and long teaching, uh, it came to the point here as we read in verse 53, now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these parables that he departed from there. And when he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? So he went to his hometown. And they were saying among themselves, verse 55, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where... Where then did this man get all these things? So as we consider this little portion of scripture here, talking about Jesus going back to his own town to teach and the people rising up and saying these things about him, just want to take an opportunity to help refute something that is out there in in Christianity, and that's this idea of the perpetual virginity of Mary. It's obvious from verses 55 and 56 that she had other children. And so uh, we're told of the four boys there and then his sisters, plural, and we're, of course, not told how many sisters he had. But obviously they had a large family. You throw Jesus in the mix. There were five boys and a few girls, so that's a pretty good-sized family. And so they were offended, verse 57, at Jesus coming into their town and walking into their synagogue, which, you know, this is the place where he grew up. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. And we find this principle of familiarity breeds contempt. And the people had an attitude, didn't they? They're like, this is Jesus. He grew up here among us. We know his family. We know his brothers and sisters. We know uh, what kind of people they are, assuming, of course, they were good people, a good, solid family, but they couldn't receive from him. And as Jesus said here, a prophet is without honor except in his own country, is not without honor except in his own country. And so he went back among his people and he taught them. And as he taught them and as he spoke the word to them in power, you see, the word of God has power, it has innate power to touch the hearts of people. But our hearts, as we've already talked about with the parable of the soils, are like that dirt and and the seed, which is the word, falls on the soil. And in this particular town, his hometown of Nazareth, the word of God fell on hard soil, didn't it? They didn't even want to receive it. They were offended that this young man, who was not educated in their view, they knew he didn't go to university in Jerusalem. He didn't go down to Alexandria to the great school of learning. And yet here he is in their town presenting himself as a rabbi and teaching. 
And it says in verse 58 that he did not do mighty works there because of their unbelief. Unbelief is a wet blanket to faith. Unbelief hinders the growth of faith. We're going to encounter unbelief a little bit later in our study today. But, you know, we want to encourage faith to grow, don't we? You know, why would we plant a seed in our garden and then not help it grow? We would cultivate it, wouldn't we? We would water it. We would weed it. We would make sure that it had the proper sun. We would make sure that it's taken care of. And in like manner for our own faith and for the faith of others, we want to encourage faith to grow. But when we have our negativity and our cynicism and we throw a wet blanket on someone's faith when they say, you know, hey, I want to do this in the name of the Lord, uh, we ought to encourage them to do that. We ought to say, how can I come alongside and help? And rather than his community coming around him and supporting him in this new ministry that he had, they told him that he was not worthy and that he was not someone that they could listen to. So we find in verse 14, excuse me, chapter 14, verse 1, at that time Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus and said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. And the, um, the implication here is that this is John the Baptist reincarnated. He is risen from the dead. And therefore these powers are at work in him. For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had said to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. And therefore he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. And so she, having been prompted by her mother, this was kind of a setup situation, said, Give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. And so he sent and had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. This is a pretty sordid situation. This is one of the many Herods. There were seven. We're not going to go through their family tree this morning and sort all that out for you. Uh, But this Herod was a tetrarch, meaning he was a ruler over a fourth of the kingdom. He was one of Herod's sons, Herod the Great. And this man was pretty dastardly. He uh, was said that it was safer to be a pig in his house than to be one of his sons, because this man feared people uh, being his sons. Uh, He feared that they might want to rise up and take his throne, and so he he had some of his family murdered. So he's a pretty crazy guy. And he also, on one of his visits back to Rome, his brother Philip was married to this lady, Herodias, and uh, it was his brother Philip's wife, and he lusted for her and had a relationship with her, no doubt committed adultery with her, and took her to be his own wife. And he was actually at that time on the rise in the kingdom. He was slated to be a king. And so she also, being hungry for power, left the, the brother Philip, who was only going to be a ruler and never elevated to the status of a king, and she wanted the, 
the fast track to power and wealth. And so she went with um, her husband's brother. And so uh, John, of course, had been ministering to Herod. Herod often liked to hear John. And so John, when he had heard about what happened, is uh, Herod had put away his current wife and then took his brother Philip's wife. John stood up to him and said, you'd like to hear what I have to say? We'll hear this. You've broken God's laws. It's against God's laws that you take another man's wife and that you've committed adultery in his sight. And up to that point, Herod had shown a little interest in what John had to say. But Herodias was very upset and unpleased, of course, with what John had said, as was uh, Herod. And so he was thrown in jail because of speaking the truth in the name of Christ. And she had this daughter. Uh, We know her name was Salome by other scriptures. And uh, there was a setup here on his birthday. Uh, She brought her daughter in, dressed in uh, sort of a seductive attire, and did this dance after the wine and the meal had happened and the, the alcohol was flowing and he was all giddy and happy and sitting back in his chair and just observing and enjoying the day. And then she had her daughter come in and dance this seductive dance and sort of got him all riled up and excited. And then he applauded and said, hey, that was incredible. That was awesome. You know, whatever you want up to half the kingdom, I'll give you. Just, you know, in, on a whim, in a drunken stupor, said these things. And she said, okay, I want John's head on a platter, as her mother had told her to say. And in that moment, although he was sorry, but he spoke it in public and the king could not go back on his word, John the Baptist in that moment in the prison was sitting there minding his own business, wondering what was going on, and they come in and just take his head off and take it in and think of how gruesome and morbid it would be, but brought in his head on a platter and presented it to her mother because that's what she wanted. She was offended at the word of God, and she was offended at the truth of God's word. That's a violent reaction to God's word. So now we turn our attention, verse 13, to Jesus's continuing ministry. And it says in verse 13, when Jesus heard it, that is what happened to Herod, he depart, excuse me, to uh, John, his cousin, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself, But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. Now, this uh, feeding of the 5,000 is significant to us because it appears in all four Gospels. There aren't that many uh, situations in the Gospels that appear in all four Gospels. But this is one of them. And the other Gospels, Mark chapter 6, if you want to write these down, uh, Mark chapter 6, Luke chapter 9, and John chapter 6 also give us a parallel account of what happened here with the feeding of the 5,000. We're told in Mark's Gospel of verse 13 here, Matthew 14, 13, uh, Mark six thirty one says, And Jesus said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. So Matthew, of course, says when Jesus heard it, he departed from there by a boat. And it makes us think that he went by himself. He actually went with the disciples. But his desire was to get them together alone 
to have a time of recharging and resting. And no doubt Jesus wanted some time to pray and rest. And so as they departed in that boat and they went to where they were going, the people heard that he was going across the northern end of the the Sea of Galilee. And they ran on foot around the shore to get to where he was going so that when they got there, they didn't have time to get any rest. As they got there, the people were there. And verse 14, and when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude. That is when he went out of the boat. And he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. So we have such an incredible picture here of our Lord, tired, weary, had just spent days and days teaching and ministering and healing and laying his hands on people and praying for people, meeting their needs. And when he got out of the boat and he saw this multitude and they had told other people and all these people ran Keep in mind, you know, they didn't just get in their cars and drive over to the church building. They ran around the shore, and they had their kids, they had their families, and they were so enthralled with what Jesus was doing. And when Jesus got there, this whole crowd was there of people, probably a greater crowd than he had in the last place he had just ministered. And he was moved with compassion. Now, he is Jesus, he is the Lord, but this is a lesson for us, isn't it? When we're tired, when we're weary, and there's people calling us, and you know they have needs, and they're, they're wanting our help, and, and of course I'm speaking ministry in the name of the Lord, uh, not saying no. Yes, there's wisdom and getting rest and all of that, but, but Jesus didn't have time for rest. The people were so hungry, they were so thirsty, they were so dry. They wanted to know the will of God. They wanted to hear the words that Jesus was speaking and notice that he was moved with compassion. This means that in the deepest part of his being, he was moved. Jesus did not just have an emotional response. He had a physical response. He had a spiritual response to seeing this great crowd of people. And I would say that by way of application for us, if you're taking notes this morning, that the compassion of Jesus is something that we should pray for, to have the eyes that he had, to have the heart that he had, and that we ourselves would be moved with compassion. You know what we do in our society. We usually kind of go, I don't have time to get involved. And Jesus didn't say that, did he? He didn't say, I'm too tired, I don't have time. We need to rest, right? Now, this is our time, you go away. Instead, he stood up. He ministered to them. He was moved with compassion. Back in Matthew chapter 9, we had a similar situation. Jesus had been teaching and preaching and healing sicknesses. And in Matthew 9, 36, but when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. And this is how Jesus saw the people. He didn't see them as burdens. He didn't see them as difficulties. He didn't see them as problems to be solved or issues to be dealt with. He saw them as people needing a shepherd, and he was that shepherd. In verse 15, when it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, this is a deserted place, Lord. The hour's already late. No, no doubt, reading between the lines here, and we're tired, and you're tired. We're exhausted. We're all hungry. 
Lord, send them away. Send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. We're told in John's gospel that Jesus lifted up his eyes as they said this to him, seeing a great multitude come toward him. And he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. So they said, send the multitudes away. In that moment, the disciples were really thinking only of themselves, not of the people, not of the needs of the people. And of course, they had seen Jesus work so many miraculous things. They had been with him now for a long time. They had seen how he was, how he worked, how he prayed, how he ministered. Jesus often just did what needed to be done in the moment. He met the needs of the people. And you see, human practical wisdom, and we certainly live in an age of pragmatism, human practical wisdom would say, send them away. Tell them to go home. And the people, uh, the, the disciples rather, were looking at the people saying that they have physical needs, but the physical solution's too great for us. We don't have anything to feed them, and they need to go home so that we can rest. You see, addressing only the physical needs cannot address the true spiritual need in the heart of a person, in the heart of man. Spiritual needs cannot really be met by physical means. Spiritual needs must be met by spiritual means. In verse 16, Jesus said to his disciples, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. I'm sure as those words fell from Jesus' lips onto their ears that they were like, well, what? I mean, look at all these people. We're told later that there were 5,000 men besides women and children. So it doesn't take a lot of math here to figure this out. There were, if, if everybody had a wife, that would be 10,000. And if everybody had one kid, that would be 15,000. Most people had more than one child. So there's, a, there's probably at least conservatively 15,000 people in this situation. And Jesus said, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Now, Jesus was challenging their faith and their thinking by saying this, wasn't he? Imagine you're standing there and you're looking at all these people. And Jesus says, give them something to eat. And they're like, uh, Lord, <laughs> hello, we're out here in the middle of nowhere. There's no markets. Everything's closed. It's the end of the day. There's no food. You see, Jesus was challenging their faith and their thinking because he wanted them to understand that the issue and the need, while presenting itself as physical, was truly spiritual. We need to see physical needs in the context of spiritual needs. Meeting spiritual needs often ends up addressing physical needs. Every person's greatest need is spiritual, not physical. So many times when people come and they say, can you pray for this person? With no background, just, you know, pray for this person. And I will say, well, do they know the Lord? And a lot of the time, the majority of the time, the answer is no. Well, they may be sick, they may have cancer, they may have some terrible thing going on in their lives, but their greatest need is not to have their problem solved. Their greatest need is to know Christ. And in knowing Christ, then their problems will be addressed. 
Verse 17, and they said to Jesus, well, we have here only five loaves and two fish. The other gospels tell us that they had found a young boy who had his lunch with him in a little basket. And of course, in those days, they didn't have lunch boxes like we think of today with Power Rangers on the side and all those kinds of things. This was just a little boy with some, uh, some loaves and some fishes wrapped up in a napkin in a basket or in a pouch. And so somehow they found this little boy and he was willing to share his, his food with them. And so when they said to Jesus, here, this is what we have, Lord, this is all we've got. This, these are our resources, these five loaves and these two fish. Now, don't think of fish like, you know, if you go to the supermarket and you see like this big slab of fish, these were probably more on the order of sardines, okay? These are small fish. And so Jesus said to his disciples, bring them here to me. As I was reading that yesterday, I was thinking of that verse in John 15, verse 5, where Jesus said, for without me, you can do nothing. He's challenged them to think there's a big problem. There's a great need. And it's not just a need that's a little bit bigger than my capacity. This is overwhelming. If somebody said today, I want you to plan a party for 15,000 people, and there needs to be enough food for everybody. And you say, Where, where's all the money coming from? And, and he says, don't worry about it. Well, but okay, but what's my budget? And where are we going to have this? And 15,000, are we going to you know, sit down? And how are we going to do this? And Jesus just says, hey, bring them here to me. We'll take care of it. Verse 19, then Jesus commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass. Now Jesus speaking to 15,000 people. And he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples, and the disciples gave to the multitudes. Let's not miss something here. Now look at that verse again. He commanded, he took, he looked, he blessed, he broke, and he gave. These six things that Jesus did buried in that verse. Let's talk about it for a moment. He commanded the multitudes of people to sit down and to watch what God would do. Jesus took charge of the situation. This was an impossible situation by all human standards. And this is a huge lesson in faith for us. So let's not miss it this morning. What do we do when we are faced with problems? A lot of us have mechanisms, right? We default to something. Some people default to alcohol. Some default to drugs. Some to default to other things to medicate their needs or to help them deal with their stress. But the point here is this. We need to run to Jesus. So Jesus is training these disciples here. He commanded them. And he didn't even have to say, watch this, fellas. They were watching him. They were glued to him. He commanded them. The multitudes of people, have them sit down and watch what God will do. Listen to these passages in the Old Testament. Jesus is not just randomly solving a problem here. He is a prophet. He is the Messiah. Exodus chapter 14, Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. The Lord will fight for you. Second Chronicles Chapter 20, verse 17, you will not need to fight in this battle, 
Position yourselves, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you. Second Chronicles chapter 32, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid nor dismayed before the king of Assyria, nor before all the multitude that is with him, for there are more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people were strengthened by the words of King Hezekiah that day. Jesus commanded them to take their seats. Something was about to happen. And then he took in his hands the five loaves and the two fish because that's all they had. Now that was a boy's lunch. That probably wasn't even enough to feed one man. We're already told we had 5,000 men besides women and children. Jesus then looked up to heaven, not to man, not to the resources. He didn't look at him and go, I'm not even going to pray for this. This is ridiculous. Jesus lifted it up to heaven, to God, to his Father. And he looked to his Father, his heavenly Father, not to man, not to man's resources. The solution here was not more money, more people, or even more food in that respect. The solution was looking to God. It's interesting, this word looking here means to look up and by implication to recover sight. To recover sight. So the idea here is that looking to heaven, Jesus had his sight recalibrated. And the point is that that was a lesson for us. That was a lesson for the disciples. When you're faced with something, what do you do? You look to heaven. And you have your eyes, your sight recalibrated. In other words, uh, you see when you look up to heaven. You recover your sight. In Psalm 73, a great psalm, the psalmist was dismayed. He had been looking at the world around him. and He had been looking at the situation politically and economically and all of that. And he was overwhelmed. And he said, Lord, this doesn't make sense. The unrighteous prosper." The righteous suffer. What's going on here, God? And in Psalm 73, he says in verse 16, when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I understood their end. And that's a beautiful psalm. You should go read it later. And as you read it, uh, verse 23, a little further along, it says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterwards receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Jesus looked to heaven. He blessed. He blessed the loaves and the fishes. He took them into his hands. And the word blessed here means to ask or to for or to request favor. And as Jesus was lifting this little basket of food up to heaven and asking his heavenly Father for help, he was blessing God. And that's what we do when we look at a situation. We praise God. We bless God. Lord, I've got this situation here. I've got this problem. Here's my meager resources, but Lord, I'm going to bless you. You see, the problem is we focus on the problem, don't we? We focus on the lack We focus on the glass is half empty. Rather than looking to the Lord Jesus, 
Rather than looking to heaven, looking to God and saying, God, I bless you. I'm so thankful, Lord, that this is where we are right now. The word bless can mean to to praise, to speak well of, to consecrate, to cause, to prosper. And the idea here is asking God to be gracious and to multiply what we have right here, right now, for his glory and for our good. And see, here's the principle. Little is made much in the hands of God. Little is made much in the hands of God. What was their part in the whole situation? Just to put what they had into the hands of Jesus. So he blessed it, and then he broke it. And that's what the Lord has to do, doesn't he? He has to break us. He has to break the resources. He has to break apart the loaves and the fish. This word for break or broke is only used 15 times in the New Testament. Almost every time it's of bread and of communion. So you get the idea here that perhaps Jesus, in this moment as he's breaking this bread, might have been preparing not only a physical meal, but also communion in a sense for the people. And then it says he gave. So he gave the loaves and the fishes to the disciples to distribute to the people. And we need to remember this, that as his servants, we are distributors, not manufacturers of God's goodness or God's grace. We are distributors of what he has given to us. Paul, the apostle, said, that which I've received of the Lord is that which I've also given to you. You see, if you know the Lord Jesus, and if he has blessed you, whatever that blessing means, it can be material, it can be physical, it can be monetary, It can just be the the blessing of God, the love of God. Your heart is overflowing and filled with the Spirit and with the goodness of God and with the Word of God. Whatever God has blessed you with, however God has blessed you, we are to use to bless others. Remember, the Lord fed probably about two million people in the wilderness in Israel, didn't he? And what did God do as he took care of his people? He rained manna from heaven. He gave them water from a rock. And when they wanted meat, he gave them quail to eat. And Jesus is here as the Lord was there in the wilderness feeding his people. Jesus is feeding people. And just as the impossibility of feeding 2 million people in the wilderness, so it was to feed 15,000 on the side of the hill that day. And we are told as the disciples distributed that they just kept passing the basket and every time it came back to them, it was full. You see, this miraculous thing happened that in the hands of Jesus, things were multiplied. And I can tell you, and and the guys who are on our board here can tell you, we look at our spreadsheet every month and we don't know how we are still here. It's like red. It's just always negative. But every month, the bills are paid. God has a math that I don't understand. And he blesses things. God can take five bucks and make it a hundred. God can do that, not me. I don't know how to do that. I can't go into the bank and say, I know it's here. I'm depositing five bucks, but can you consider it a thousand and can we, can we be friends? You can't do that. But God does it. And so God multiplied this little tiny two sardines and five little pieces of bread, finger rolls, And it fed 15,000 plus people. Verse 20, so they all ate and were filled. And then they took up 12 baskets full of the fragments. 12 baskets. 
They all ate and they were filled. That word means that they were fed until they were fully satisfied. Strong's concordance says to gorge. The word can be used of fattening an animal, and the implication was that there was not even one person out of the 15,000 or however many that were there who was not fully satisfied. Think of Thanksgiving. Have you ever left a Thanksgiving meal? Most of us haven't. And said, I didn't have enough to eat. This is how it was that day as Jesus fed these 5,000 people in the wilderness. Or perhaps they could remember back to John chapter 2 at the beginning of Jesus' ministry where Jesus showed up at the wedding in Cana. And they ran out of wine very quickly. And Jesus' mother came and said, said, son, they're out of wine. And he said, how's this my problem, mom? And she said, come on. And he said, it's not my time. She said, son. And he said, okay. And what did Jesus do? He had them fill up the water pots, 20 and 30 gallon water pots, all of them until they were full. Fill them up to the brim. So they poured the water in. And Jesus said, now dip some out and take it to the master of the feast. And they were like, well, this water. He said, "Eh, just do it. And somewhere along the way, either between the dipping or the walking, it became wine. And not just wine, the best wine. You remember the story and it got there and the master of the feast tasted it and he's like wow this is good wine why do normally you serve the the you know the good stuff up front and once people have gotten a little tipsy and they've had enough wine then you give them the cheap stuff but he said you've saved the best for last and it said in that passage in john chapter 2 but the, the stewards the servants they knew what happened and so here i think you have the same thing going on the people they didn't know what was happening. All they know was there's, ba- there's baskets of food coming to them. They're just being fed. And they're like, man, this is incredible. This is the best food ever. And we all have enough to eat. Where did they get all this food? There's no food truck. What's happening? And all they know is they keep passing the baskets. And the baskets are always full. Jesus is there. How many disciples were there? Twelve. How many baskets filled full? of leftovers were there? Twelve. Now I imagine back at the beginning of this, the disciples, remember when they said, Lord, send them away, they were tired, they were hungry, and they were like, Lord, there's not enough here to feed people. There's, there's, there's a little kid's lunch, that's it. How, how is this going to help anything? The other gospels said, Lord, we don't even have enough money to go away and buy food. It would take at least 200 denarii. That's 200 days wages. That's Almost two-thirds of a year. Think about your two-thirds of a year's wages to go buy enough food to feed these people. Lord, what are we going to do? And here they are now taking up 12 full baskets. And not only did they serve and meet the needs of people by the command of Jesus, but now their needs are met and they've got more than enough. They can't even eat everything that's in those baskets. They each have their own plate full of food overflowing the leftovers were more than what they started out with how does that happen the word remained at the end of that verse means to abound to exceed to increase to be superfluous can't say the word and it means to be furnished or gifted with an abundance 
Now those who were, had eaten that day, verse 21, were about 5,000 men besides women and children. The feeding of the 5,000 at the very least gives us three principles regarding how God provides for people. Thank God and, for and wisely use what you've been given. Trust God's unlimited resources to meet our needs. And don't waste what he gives you. Be a good steward of the things that God gives you. Well, as if that wasn't enough. I mean, their head had to be reeling from what just happened. The day has finally come to an end. And in verse 22, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. So Jesus said, this time it's going to happen. It's getting dark. You guys get in the boat. You go back to the other side. And Jesus himself took care as a good host, sending all the people, I thank you for coming today. God bless you. Shaking hands, kissing kids, doing all of that, sends them all away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray, finally, getting some time alone with his father, seeking the face of God. Now when evening came, he was alone. So Jesus is sitting up on the side of the hill, looking over the the Sea of Galilee. And in verse 24, but the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. So some kind of a storm had come up. And Jesus could see from where he was what was happening. They're out in the middle of, of the lake, and they're rowing, and they're trying to get across, and now they're fighting against the storm. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. So now this gives, gives us some perspective. The watches of the night, there were four of them. The first one was 6 p.m. to 9 p.m., watch number one, watch number two, 9 to 12 Watch number 3, 12 a.m. to 3 a.m., and the fourth watch of the night would have been 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. So Jesus now, in the middle of the night, they've been out there rowing all night. They're at the northern end of the Sea of Galilee. It shouldn't have taken them nearly that long to get across that part of the lake. But the sun had set. They're out there in the middle of the night. They're rowing. They're fighting against the storm. The wind was contrary. The waves were, were contrary And they were just having a tough time. So Jesus decides to go out. And he waited until the ship was as far from land as possible so that all human hope was gone. And he was testing their faith. Remember, he sent them and he says, go ahead, I'll meet you there. He waited until they had no way, humanly speaking, to solve the problem that they were facing, which was being stuck in the middle of the night in the middle of the lake, and they couldn't get across. Now, they'd already been in an impossible situation previously, right, by feeding the 15,000. Now they're in another one. And so Jesus goes out, and he begins walking on the water. He begins coming to them. And why did he walk on the water? Some have suggested to show his disciples that the very thing they feared, the sea and the storm, this was just a staircase. This was just stepping stones for him. Our problems, our limitations, are God's possibilities. Often we fear the difficult experiences of life, such as surgery or bereavement or whatever we're facing, the loss of a job, only to discover that these experiences bring Jesus closer to us. And when the disciples saw Jesus, verse 26, walking toward them on the sea, they were troubled and they said, It's a ghost. And they cried out for fear. 
So they're already pretty frazzled, pretty fried, tired, fearful. And they cried out for fear. And listen, fear, when we get caught up in fear, fear makes the faults appear real. Fear makes a small problem seem large. Fear makes us prone to deception. Did you catch that? Fear makes us prone to deception. Their fear caused them to be troubled, we were just told. And their fear drove them to superstition. Oh, it's a ghost. Fear causes a person to believe, to say, and to do irrational things. Have you ever been caught up in fear? Have you ever responded in fear? Have you ever made decisions in fear and it was completely the wrong thing to do? But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Be of good cheer, it is I. Do not be afraid. This be of good cheer means to take courage. That is the literal translation of the original language. Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. What is Jesus saying to them in the middle of this situation that they find themselves in? He's like, don't worry, guys, I'm here. We're thinking, send in the Coast Guard and and flight us out, Lord. Drop the basket down so I can get in. And we need to get out of here. This is ridiculous. I've had enough. Jesus says, no, no, I'm here. Where's Jesus? I'm with you on the storm. I'm with you on the lake. And what did he say? Do not be afraid. You see, fear and faith cannot exist together. If you live in fear, you do not have faith. They are mutually exclusive. It's not like we have a glass half with red water and half of the blue water and it kind of goes up and down. And the red is good and the blue is bad or whatever. No, no, you have fear or you have faith. Isaiah 43, I imagine Jesus might have called this to mind. I don't know. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. Why? Because I'm here. That was Isaiah 43, 1 and 2. Is it possible that this situation is what prompted James, the half-brother of Jesus, to write the words in James chapter 1 when he said, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith, and that's certainly what this was, produces patience or endurance. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives liberally to all and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. But let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, for he is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Now Peter is looking and he sees. This is Jesus, and he says in verse 28, Peter says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. If it's really you, Lord, you you speak the word. If you say, Peter, come to me, I know it can happen. Seeing Jesus walking on the water gave Peter a boldness of faith to take a great risk and understand something about faith. Faith is synonymous with risk. Risk doesn't have to be foolishness. 
But taking steps of faith means that we don't know what the outcome is going to be or we don't know how it's going to happen. It seems Peter thought, well, if Jesus can do it and Jesus commands me to do it, then I guess I can do it. And so he saw his Lord, he saw his master, and he says, Lord, if it's really you, and I don't think there was any pride here in what Peter said, I think Peter was encouraged by Christ. And so he said, Lord, if it's you, Jesus said to him, verse 29, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Now, how many of the other disciples followed Peter? None, right? Zero. Peter was a leader. Jesus encouraged Peter to take that step of faith, didn't he? He said, yes, Peter, come. Jesus didn't encourage Peter to fail. He encouraged Peter to faith. Today, I believe Jesus is encouraging all of us to take bold steps of faith in his name. Just as Jesus said to Peter, come. And we must learn to discern the difference between faith and foolishness. This experience with Jesus gave Peter a greater confidence down the road. And as we look into the book of Acts, we see Peter, a different person, a man filled with the Holy Spirit, a man who has no more fear. But when he saw the wind and that it was boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out saying, Lord, save me. We can be critical of Peter, but I don't think we should be. Because Peter was the only one who got out of the boat. He was the only one who took that risk of faith. Max Lucado wrote a book years ago. Now, I'm not a huge Max Lucado fan, but this was a good book. And the title of the book was called, If You Want to Walk on Water, You Have to Get Out of the Boat. Makes sense. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said, Oh, you of little faith, Peter, why did you doubt? You see, understand something about faith, folks. If you're going to be bold and take a step of faith, you might get wet. But it's okay. It's okay to get wet. You see, we're afraid to fail. That's so often what our fear is. It's the fear of failure. But when it comes to faith, when it comes to taking steps of faith in the name of the Lord, it's okay to get wet. It's not failure. It's learning. It's growing. It's not failure that we should fear. It's, that it's not exercising faith that we should fear. Why? Because it's too easy to allow fear to cause us to fall into complacency. You see, I, I think there's a thing in the scriptures, even though these words aren't used, and I would call it this way, active faith and passive faith. Passive faith would look something like this. I believe Jesus is my savior. I'm going to heaven. Praise God. See you next week. Active faith is a faith that is constantly looking to heaven, seeking the Lord. Lord, what's up today? Lord, what are we doing today? Lord, what do you have for me today? I'm your servant. Lord, how can I serve you today? What do you have for me? How do you want me to respond to the things that you bring across my path today? There's no accidents with God. If God is truly in control, then the things that happen in our lives are by his design, aren't they? He divinely allows things into our lives. And you see, Peter, in this moment, lost focus on the Lord. He allowed the wind and the waves to become a distraction. 
And when Jesus said to Peter, why do you doubt? The word doubt means to be divided in two different ways. Remember, James said, the doubting man is unstable. He is like the waves being tossed about. You see, Peter looked at the wind and the waves and he looked at Jesus and he became distracted. Yes, he doubted in that moment. See, he had already been walking on the water. He, he had had faith and he was looking at Jesus and he had taken those steps and yet he sort of looked away from Jesus and was looking at all the stuff around him. And this is what happens to us. We get distracted by the wind and the waves and the problems and the situations and the issues and they're just too much sometimes. And, and I was talking to somebody this week and they were just talking to me about all of the stress and anxiety. And I said, have you prayed? Have you cast your cares on the Lord? Have you phoned a friend and said, hey, would you pray with me over this? You see, that's what we need to do. Peter here shows us the weakness of little faith. Little faith is often found in places where we might expect great faith. Little faith is far too eager to see signs and wonders. Little faith is apt to have too high an opinion of its own power, meaning my faith. Little faith is too much affected by surroundings or by circumstances. Little faith is too quick to exaggerate the magnitude of the problem in front of us. Yet Peter also shows us some of the strengths of a small or a little faith. Little faith is true faith. Little faith will obey the word of Jesus. That's what Peter did. He obeyed the word of Jesus. Little faith struggles to come to Jesus, and it's okay to struggle because you're moving in the right direction. Little faith will accomplish great things for a period of time. Little faith will pray when it is in trouble, and little faith is safe because Jesus is near. Little faith is okay because little faith will grow into big faith. And when Jesus and Peter got into the boat, the wind ceased. And then those who were in the boat came and worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. In Psalm 118, excuse me, Psalm 18, verse 16, we find this verse, he sent from above, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. In Psalm 29, verse 3, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders, the Lord is over many waters. In other words, God's always in control. Psalm 32, 6, for this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near you. Psalm 77, 19, your way was in the sea, your path in the great waters and your footsteps were not known. I wonder if Psalm 77, 19 was speaking about Jesus walking across the water. Psalm 93, 4, the Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters, than the mighty waves of the sea. God's bigger than the waves. He's bigger than the storm. Verse 34, then when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent out into all that surrounding region and brought to him all who were sick. And they begged him, they begged Jesus that, he might only that, uh, that they might only touch the hem of his garment. You see, their faith was so amazed by everything that Jesus had been doing. And they no doubt had heard 
of the woman with the issue of blood, which we studied a few weeks ago. And they're coming up saying, okay, Lord, you don't even need to do anything to us. Just let us come up and touch the hem of your garment like she did. And it says, and as many as touched it were made perfectly well. That's active faith, isn't it? That's people going to Jesus saying, Lord, I don't, I don't have the solution, but I know you do. And they're coming to Christ, and Jesus was allowing them to be healed by their little act of faith of touching the hem of his garment. And so that's the end of the chapter of chapter 14. But I want to encourage you this morning that whether we're talking about loaves or fishes or boats or big problems or little problems or blessing lunch or asking God to help us in the middle of a storm, Hasn't Jesus showed us just today in this passage that he's here, that he's with us, that he will never leave us or forsake us, that there's nothing too great for him? We just need to come to Jesus. We need to to come to him and to bring our problems to him. And we need to look to heaven. And we need to have our vision refreshed. We need to look to the Lord and, and watch what he's going to do. See, just as we may think of God solving our problems and meeting our needs, this story is about so much more than that, isn't it? It's about taking steps of faith. It's about being used and useful in his hands. Going back to the parable of the soil and the, 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 the soils and the sower. It's about bearing fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold. You know, I, I've, it so affected me being beside my parents' bed as they both passed away. Because in those moments, you're not thinking about money. You're not thinking about an inheritance. You're not thinking about all the things you didn't do. In that moment, there's only one thing that matters, and that's Jesus. And I guarantee you, when we get to the end of our lives, when it's us laying on that deathbed, We're not going to be looking back saying, I wish I spent more time at the office. I wish I had made more money and this, that, and the other thing. No, what we think of is our regrets, don't we? I wish I'd spent more time with the kids. I wish I said sorry to this person. I wish this relationship was right. And I wish I had taken more time to know the Lord. Now, I'm about to enter eternity and that that problem's solved. But here in this life on this earth, We get to practice worshiping God. We get to practice being in his presence now. And every time we open this book and we open our mouth to sing his praise and we read it, we're experiencing heaven on earth. We're experiencing the presence of the Lord. And the Lord Jesus, in all these things today, wants us to understand that he is here. And he's not just here to help us meander our way through life. He wants us to prosper. He wants us to be a blessing because we are blessed. He wants us to be full and filled and to be overflowing to the world around us. He wants to fill us up with love and he wants to fill us up with his Holy Spirit. So let's let him do what he wants to do that we might be the people that he wants us to be. Lord, thank you this morning for your word, for your love, for your grace, for your mercy. Lord, you're here, you're among us, and we love you. And we just thank you so much for how you take care of us and you meet our needs. But Lord, help us to expand our faith and our vision beyond ourselves and our own little world. 
And help us, Lord, to see you high and lifted up, the train of your robe filling the temple. And Lord, may we see that everything, is, it's, it's not about us, it's about you. And may we, God, have faith. Lord, give us the kind of faith that Peter had to step out of the boat. Lord, give us the kind of faith to bring our box lunch to you and see what you can do with it. Lord, God, give us faith to press into you and trust you. Lord, we love you. We bless your holy name. May you be honored and magnified and glorified here in this church and in our lives. And may we grow up into the head, even into Christ. And may our faith as a mustard seed grow into something that bears fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. May we have the kind of faith that moves mountains, Lord. Not because of who we are, but because of who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.